Good morning. Well, I'm not Tom, but Tom's right there. I get to preach to Tom, and I, I've had a lot of things I've been wanting to cover, talk to him about. And uh, so this is all for you, Tom. This, this is. Do, do I have your pen? Oh, he's got his pen. Okay, I usually take his pen is why I said that. Usually while he's up here, I take his pen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Usually I do the intro and the outro, so I... I don't really know what to do with a sermon, so what I did is I just, I sort of, I wrote an intro and an outro and I just blended them together. So, I, I hope that works. I hope that works. Um, uh, listen, I want to start with a declaration today because we're going into this passage. We've been studying the book of Acts, if you haven't been here. Uh, we, we've had this big idea for the year that life is mission. And we've been studying through the book of Acts and it's, it's like an unbelievable book. The power in this book is amazing. And this week, we're studying this incredible story of the first martyr after the ascension of Christ, the first person to give his life for what he believed. And it's 68 verses. If you did your personal worship this week, you probably had to take time off of work um, to read through that passage every day. But it's an, it's an amazing story. So I want to start by making it real simple for you. Um, I want to start with a declaration. And the declaration is this. There is a God, and he created everything, and he created you, and his purpose for his creation is to be a reflection of his glory, and that includes you. He created you to be in perfect fellowship with him. That's why you were made. Every single one of you in this room, that is his purpose for his creation. Whether you've grown up going to church or whether this is the first time you've ever set foot in one or whether you grew up going to church and you hated it or you had some bad experience or you got caught up in the trappings of church and of rituals and all those sorts of things and you're done with them. God is done with them too. So where we're going to start today is where we're going to end today and that is you and God. Everything in this world is details that either drive you to him and the peace and the freedom that comes with him or drive you away from him. And that's what today's about. You know, I didn't used to be a crier. Um, I cry all the time now. I just, I just cry. In fact, we were in there in the worship thing and, and Connie Kern said, don't make me cry. Um, I know some people, it's like hiccups, you know, or, or, or yawning. You know, if, if one person cries, then you just cry. No matter why they're crying, they hit themselves with a hammer and they cry, you're crying too. Well, I was not a crier until not very many years ago. I'm here to tell you, I could literally count. I could tell you the last time I cried and it was usually, you know, two years ago or something like that. Now it's just like all the time. And I don't know whether it's just that I'm getting older and my hormones are all messed up or what it is. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I learned in a women's studies class in college that men have a a, a hormonal cycle as well. So maybe that's it. But I think that through life and experiences, God has been peeling these scales off of me and off of my eyes and off of my heart so that I only see him. And when that happens in those little moments when, when he moves everything out of the way and I let him do that and I only see him, I can't help but weep 
at the beauty of what I see. So maybe that's why. At least that's a cool reason, right? You know, it's better than hormones. So today we're going to continue our conversation about life as mission. Life created for God. We, you know, we put, I, I, I do this. And in my notes here, I got this big paragraph and it says, our mission is a mission of redemption, the restoration of God's perfect. No, your life is God. Your life is you and God. That's it. You were made for him. You were made in this life to live for him. You were made in this life to bring the redemption that comes through him. And then you were made to be with him forever. That's it. That's what it means when we say life is mission. And what we're about this year is embracing that mission and going all in for it. Like Jesus, who gave his life for it. Like the apostles who built his church and gave their life for it. And like this man that we'll look at today, the first after Christ's ascension to lose his, sight, uh, lose his life for the sake of this mission. I just spent a week inspired by this guy and by the words that he said. And, and as I spent time in my personal worship, um, I, a friend of mine came to mind as I studied this passage. And I hope you did this week too. I have a friend, several months ago, I got a phone call and I hadn't talked to him in a while. And I got a phone call from his employer who knew that he went to church here but didn't know me. I'd never met him. And he said, uh, the employer uh, said, we haven't seen him in two weeks. He just quit showing up to work. And, and uh we can't get a hold of him. He won't answer phone calls. Um, his brother can't get a hold of him. And we're afraid something's happened to him. And we're afraid that he has a drinking problem. So me and Carter and Ryan dashed over to his house, banged on the door, terrified of what we might find. After a few minutes, he comes to the door. He opens the door. He looks a mess. And yes, he's totally consumed by an addiction to alcohol. Right there before me, my dear friend, beautiful man, good job. Owns a beautiful home, servant, loves Jesus. There he is, a pathetic shell in front of us. Quivering. Literally, I mean this much. Can't hardly talk while we're talking to him. Because he hasn't had a drink since last night. We go in, we sit down with him, and essentially the essence of the conversation is, you know I have a drinking problem, right? And the answer was essentially No. There were a lot of details to it, but the bottom line was at the end of the day, he was just going to go try. No, 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 I'm going to just sober up. I'll go to work Monday. I'll be fine. I'll I'll, I'll find a meeting. I'll go to a meeting. I'll go to counseling. That was the end of it, no matter what we said. Well, fast forward to several falling off the wagons over the last several months to two weeks ago. After having reasoned with this man, after he's a high, intelligent, educated man, after having reasoned with him, sat with him, talked with him, worked with him, brought his friends to him, brought his family to him, would hear none of it. Fast forward to two weeks ago, I was sitting on the foot of his bed after another phone call because he had disappeared again, while he lay curled up in a blanket next to the bed, half conscious, laying there, barely able to speak, Again, refusing the help or the implication that he could not control this. It reminded me of those TV shows like Hoarders or the shows about addiction or, or even uh, uh, things that I, I know about um, abuse. 
And people that stay with their abuser, domestic violence, they stay in the home. And you, you, you know, any sane, rational person, it's so discouraging, it's so frustrating. And what you can't understand is why they stay in their dysfunction. It seems so obvious to the rest of us that they're broken, that they need fixed. We explain it to them with perfect logic. We promise them all the resources. We remove everything but their willingness to change their way of life. And they won't. They won't. And that makes you cry for another reason. So here's the deal. As we walk into this passage today, uh, we walk into a group of people for whom this is a struggle. Now, you wouldn't know it. And that's what I want to make sure you understand before we go into this passage. These were not addicts. These were not bloodthirsty ghouls. These were people like you and me. They were good religious people that we meet today. That's the scary thing. They were good religious people. They were leaders in their community. They were respected. They were revered. They were probably loving people. They probably helped people. And these revered, honored, godly leaders of their community killed a man for the words that came out of his mouth. In fact... A man who was doing miracles like Jesus, like Peter. A man who was doing signs and wonderful things, it says. And something happened when they encountered this man that led these good God-fearing people to drag him out and kill him dead. And you know what it was? He delivered a message to them that challenged their way of life. That was it. He was no threat to them. He wasn't a physical threat to them. He he didn't threaten to overthrow the government or overthrow anything. He just said, this is Jesus and you've missed it. This is God and you've got all this junk in the way. And they were so threatened by that that they killed him for it. And... That was 2,000 years ago, but as you heard Ryan say before the service, that happens today all the time. You can look it up. Go to thevoiceofthemartyrs.com. There's a bunch of websites you can go to. Just go to CNN and write Christians killed and see what comes up. It happens every day right now. We were in Garissa, Carter Brown and I, in in Kenya, a a little village way out in the middle of the desert. We were out there in in a town. We were there a few years ago, and just this last fall... A Christian pastor, two Christian pastors were shot in the street. They were drug out and shot in the street. One of them died in Garissa, where Carter and I were. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to India with a couple guys to check out an amazing ministry opportunity um, to, to people that have been enslaved longer than anyone in human history to, to, to work with a church there, to plant churches um, among them and, and, and bring the gospel to them as part of our life as mission, uh, our global mission. Uh, well, guess what? Uh, we had to be really careful about how we filled out our our documentation and what we said we were going to do when we went there. And we have to be cautious while we're there that we don't incite people to rage. Why? Because of the threat of what? Building schools? Feeding the poor? Healing disease? Is that the threat? The threat is that the gospel requires that you change your way of life. 
Now, lest we get arrogant about that and look down our noses at these people around the world then and now, let me just tell you, we may not kill people today, but we certainly, in our culture of self-protection and self-reliance, we may not kill people so often, but you know what we kill? We kill the ideas that challenge the way we live. We make excuses, we rationalize, just like my friend laying on the floor, curled up in a blanket in his own filth. We make excuses and we rationalize and we say, I don't want to hear it. And we hide behind, we dismiss criticism. We defend and rationalize our behavior. We hide behind laws and cultural norms that are meant to protect our personal freedoms to be wrong. And we defend it as we have a right to be right in everything we do. And we live in the chains of our flawed and insufficient customs and traditions and ways of life. We all do it every day. I do it. And so, for our purposes today, those things, those things that we do are our temples built by human hands. I want you to remember that. Those are our temples built by human hands. And we have got to exchange them for the perfect temple, Jesus We have got to exchange anything that clutters our life apart from dwelling in the perfect temple, and that is Jesus. This is our mission. So with that in mind, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. And this is kind of an interesting story. It has an interesting resonance with one just a few chapters earlier. Uh, You remember what happened uh, after the... Jesus ascended, right, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. You remember that Peter and the and the 120 came out and they were all speaking and, and, and preaching and everybody could hear them in their own language. You remember that? Well, uh, there's a very interesting resonance here because they get accused of being drunk. They, they don't get accused of blasphemy like Stephen does. They get accused of being drunk by the masses. And he says, no, 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 we're not drunk. And he preaches a sermon that is essentially just as as cutting and convicting as the one that Stephen's about to preach. But what happens instead? 3,000 people are saved that day. It says that the words, that his words, cut them to the heart. And they said, what must we do? And he said, repent. And they did. And the church was formed. But so now we see this different story. That's not what happened here. There was a different outcome. The conflict uh, between these religious leaders and Stephen was centered around their traditions and the temple. The temple was a good thing. Uh, he was not getting up to to uh, belittle the temple, but really to help them understand that they had missed what the temple was all about. He wasn't getting up to discredit the law that they followed, but to say, you've missed what the law is all about and what it points toward. They, they, he got up to say uh, it, that all of this was a metaphor, a foreshadowing. It pointed to a person, that that's how God operated throughout history. He didn't operate just through rituals and buildings and places. He operated through people that he called, all of whom pointed toward A person, not a place. Or a list of things to do toward Jesus. And so we begin. And Stephen, one of the men who'd been selected as a deacon in last week's passage, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, these were freed Jewish slaves, uh, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So they got an argument with Stephen. 
But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That was the accusation. It was the exact same accusation by the exact same people before the exact same council that convicted, that tried and convicted and crucified Christ. It was the same thing in Matthew 26. They took the, 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 pat, the, the, the words that he said in John 2, where he said he was going to tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they, they misinterpreted those words and they accused him of saying that he was going to destroy the law and he was going to tear down the temple. And he was going to cause an uprising. And uh, Jesus replied in Matthew 26, something very interesting. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Remember that. Remember that. So it goes on to say in verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him. And the picture here is that they incited a mob rage against Stephen and took him by force. Now, remember, these were the good guys. These were the dignified, sophisticated guys. And these people who held these beliefs so strongly, so held so tightly to these beliefs and traditions and convictions and ways of life, incited a mob, whipped them into a rage and took Stephen by force and brought him before the council. Again, the very same council that tried Jesus, probably the same guy, probably Caiaphas. And they set up false witnesses. In other words, they started playing dirty, these good, noble, honest men. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. There it is. He will change our way of life. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, let me tell you what's going on there. That doesn't just mean that he was full of confidence and peace because of God in him. It didn't only mean that. It meant that God was authorizing him as his spokesman, just like he did to guess who? Moses in Exodus 24. When God's glory shone on Moses' face and the people saw it and they feared him. So in the midst of their persecution of this man that was supposedly standing against the temple, the dwelling place of God, against the law of God, the God who anointed the lawgiver anointed him to preach against these stiff-necked men. And so Stephen addressed the council. And I'm going to tell you, I wish I could have been there. You know, you, you, you ask that question, if you could go back in time, when would you go? Well, there's a million times I would want to go. I'm going to tell you, this is one of them. Because here's what I would have seen. I mean, it'd be awesome to see Jesus, but I expect Jesus to be who Jesus is, right? But let me tell you what you see here in Stephen. You see a Christian, just like you and me, becoming completely integrated into, dissolving into the person and likeness of Christ. Almost like Enoch in the Old Testament when he just went and walked with God. He never died. He just went with God. And so Stephen 
with the face of an angel, full of wisdom and power, bold in his speaking and truth, resting in the confidence of his saving work, sharing the suffering of Christ, embracing his his captors with compassion in this moment. With their eyes transfixed on him and his eyes transfixed on Jesus, who he can see standing, not sitting at the right hand of the father. Remember, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. This would be a great way to preach a sermon with Jesus standing there. Knowing that you were about to be with him. Forever. So Peter is, uh, so Stephen addresses the council and he recites the redemptive history of Israel. But he begins before the law. He begins before Moses. He begins before the temple. He begins where God began with Israel. He begins with Abraham. And since there are 54 verses here, I'm going to give you an overview of his message. He begins with Abraham when it's just who? It's just Abraham and God and there's nothing else. There's not even circumcision yet. There's nothing. There's no temple. There's no law. There's Abraham and God and Abraham had faith and God counted that to him as righteousness. That was it. And God took Abraham and he called him and he made him a promise that he would fulfill in his generations to come. And he led Abraham out. And he tells the story of Abraham. And he explains how God began to introduce customs like circumcision that were to point to something. That were to point to someone. And then he moves from Abraham to Moses. And I'm going to tell you what, Moses was somebody to be reckoned with and he points that out to them. Moses is a guy who appeared to him, who, um, um, who, to whom God appeared and commissioned to go to his people, to go to God's people, to be the, the one who would lead them to the fulfillment of God's promises. He performed signs and wonders in Egypt. He did miracles. He led them out of slavery. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea by the power of the God of glory who descended on the people of Israel as Remember, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night, and then that God of glory descended on the Ark of the Covenant, on the, t- on the tabernacle that God introduced. He said, I want you to be, commanded them to build him a tabernacle where I can dwell among my people, unheard of in the religious culture of that day, that a God would want to condescend to and dwell with his people, that a God would make a promise that he bound himself to keep, even in spite of their sin. So this Moses was the spokesman for that God. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He himself received the law from God himself. Think about that. He himself went up on a mountain where God was and no one else could tread and he received these oracles that these men held with such reverence. And then what does Stephen point out? He points out that they rejected him. (laughs) What do you have to do? To get the ear of these people. And they rejected him. How did they do that? Well, he's up on the mountain. He wasn't coming down in the timing table that they thought that he should. So what did they do? 
They turned to Aaron and they said, build us some gods. Build us some gods. And here was their sin. Their sin was that they wanted their way of life back. Do you know what it says? It says that their hearts and and eyes turned back toward Egypt. What were they in Egypt? Slaves. It wasn't good, but it was home and they wanted it back. In verse 39, it says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him, Moses, aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They longed for the way of life that they knew, and they made the gods like the ones that they saw there, where they were slaves, hoarders, addicts, abuse victims. They wanted to return to their slavery. Then Stephen turns to the tabernacle that God instructed Israel to make in the wilderness where he could dwell among them. And then to the temple, a permanent dwelling place that was envisioned by David. It was built by Solomon. And then God dwelt in it. It was a good thing, but it was never intended to contain him. Even Solomon himself, the builder of the temple, said that that was not possible. And then Stephen quotes Isaiah 66 and he says, this is the word of the Lord. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He quotes Isaiah talking to the people of Israel. He speaks for Solomon who said, I'm building you a temple, but I know it can't contain you. I know that's not the purpose of the temple. And then Stephen charges the council. He uses the same phrase that's used in the Old Testament. He says, you're stiff-necked. You're stiff-necked like your fathers were. You've rejected all of his messengers just like they did. And you've even killed the one that all of those messengers, all those prophets who you killed announced would come to ultimately fulfill God's promise, not just to Moses, but to Abraham, your father. And you killed him. But then that wasn't even the worst thing he accused him of. I mean, he accused him of killing their Messiah. But even worse than that, in this moment, was this. The biggest insult he levied against them is that they had not kept the law. The very thing in which they prided themselves, their way of life, he declares a failure to them. They haven't done it. He says, you've missed it. You've missed what the law was for. He condemns them for worshiping their traditions in their temple built by human hands. And that would have just cut them like a knife because that was the language you used to talk about idols that were carved out of stone. And he didn't say the temple is an idol. He didn't say the temple was an idol. You never should have built it. He said, you've made it into one. You've made your way of life into God himself and no longer do you want to dwell with the one true God. No longer do you want to dwell in the true temple, which is Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh. 
You want to dwell in a temple built by human hands. In essence, as Paul talks about in Romans, they were worshiping the created rather than the creator. And so Stephen, in his defense, and maybe this isn't a very good lawyer move, but in his defense, he becomes the prosecution. And he knows it will lead to his conviction. He's a defendant on the stand, and he's not even really defending himself. He's abandoned that. He's not trying to save himself anymore. He's abandoned himself. He's become the prosecutor against these people who had forgotten God. Knowing where that will likely take him. And how do they respond? Verse 54. They said, oh man, you're right, I'm really sorry. No, they didn't do that. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They were enraged. He built a pretty good case, I thought. Wouldn't at least, if you were a council member, wouldn't you at least be going, hmm, I never, you know, wow. We, have we, did we, I guess, man. Would you think about it for a minute? But they wouldn't. Because it was a threat to their way of life. So instead, they were enraged. They'd already made their decision. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Remember that thing that descended as a cloud, as a pillar of cloud, as a pillar of fire on the tabernacle, on the temple and dwelling? The temple that had its curtain and the Holy of Holies torn down the middle at Christ's death so that we could enter into the true temple through Christ face to face with God? He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, at the right hand of power. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. You know who else saw the heavens opened? Jacob, one of their forefathers. They would have heard that. Another authorization uh, authorization that they would have understood, like Jacob seeing the stairway to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. But He didn't see the stairway because the stairway to Jacob, which Jacob didn't know, was Christ. He saw Christ. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Literally went like this, la, 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 just like my friend laying on the floor. And rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Beautiful foreshadowing. You're going to love that story. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Hear this very carefully and and consider it against the final moments of Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees as he's being pelted with stones, he cries out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He became one with Christ. In his final moment, with his eyes on him, He fulfilled this mission here and went to stand with the one who stood with the Father. That is a life and mission 
So what do we do with this? Well, by the grace of God, maybe few or none of us will ever have to face a stoning, uh, uh, a fake trial, false witnesses who are bent on killing us. But let me tell you something. Um, Jesus' program threatens your way of life. It threatens your traditions. Um, there are a lot of things we do. There are a lot of ways that we live that we put off limits to God. And we may not kill people over them, but we certainly kill the thought. We kill the idea. These are the temples that we build with our human hands. And they happen every day in everyday life. We all have our rituals. Some, for some of us, it is church. For some of it is us, it is I am so busy at church. I serve so much at church. I go to church so much. And that's it. And that's where it ends. That is my dwelling place. That is my, that is my God with whom I dwell. And I build a temple around that to protect it, even though I'm missing God altogether. You know how you know you're missing God if you're at church all the time? If your heart is empty and cold. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens when God indwells you and when your temple is His temple. That's what happens. If that's not happening in you, then church is not, then, then, then maybe church has become your idol. But there are others. Let me throw out a few. Temples built by human hands. Maybe it's your career. In the temple built by human hands, your career defines and drives you. Climbing the ladder drives everything that you do. You'll sacrifice time with your family, time with God, roots in a good church and community, mystery, uh, ministry calling, everything at the altar of professional success. Now that does not mean that as God blesses you and as you become more and more excellent and experiences what you do, you should resist that. But what it does mean is God is your God and God has called you to a life of mission not to a career path. And sometimes a career path can interfere with that dwelling place of God. So in that temple built by human hands, the career defines and drives you. In the eternal temple, you leverage your profession for eternal purposes. Your profession, your vocation, your calling, that which you're good at, that which supports your family, that which supports your ability to serve, that which supports your ability to... to uh, Allow Christ to shape you into his likeness like Stephen is first. Your career works for that. That doesn't work for your career. Lord, bless my career in as much as it sabotages my relationship with you. It doesn't work. Maybe it's your appearance. We live in a, in a, in a not just a country, but in a particular little spot in this country where, man, it is all about your appearance. It is all about the way you look. It is all about how you dress. Maybe you are obsessed with how you look, with what you wear, with what age is doing to you, with how it consumes your time. And you let it consume your time and your emotional and physical resources. Well, here's the deal. In the eternal temple, in the eternal temple, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is what's on the inside. That sounds like a cliche, but here's, here's the thing. It's true. All of you belongs to God and he has made you beautiful. Do you know that? He's made every person beautiful. The thumbprint, the genetic code, the DNA with which he made you is beautiful. 
And so rather than slathering things on and moving things around and spending money on things you can't afford to look a certain way for as long as you can, even though uh, everything is fighting against that, God says, don't be so concerned with that. Beauty, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But what, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised? Men need that verse these days too. Maybe it's possessions for you. And here's what I mean. I don't want to just go off on, oh, you you know, you have too many things. You should sell it and give it to the poor. That's not the point. The point is this. I've seen people through this recession who have lost a lot, who've lost homes, big homes, beautiful homes, who've lost cars, who've lost careers, who've lost lots of the trappings of their, of their success. And let me tell you what happens. They're not just bummed out. <laughs> They're not just like, oh man, what am I going to do? Where am I going to live? It destroys their soul. They're humiliated. They're embarrassed. It totally, it, it totally defines who they are, that they have these things. The worst thing that can happen is that we've gone to this place for vacation every year and we can't go this year. It's not just, oh, that's too bad, which it is too bad. It's that somehow that reflects on who I am. Let me tell you something. In the eternal temple, nothing is yours. <laughs> None of it is yours. It never was. It is all God's, it is all for his glory, it is all for his purposes, and it is his to give, and it is his to take away, and when he gives it, he gives it for a reason, and when he takes it, he takes it for a reason. It has nothing to do with your identity. Maybe it's your children. Now, this is going to sound like a weird one, but it's good, right? I'm supposed to love my children, right? Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to love your children. Uh Maybe you live for your children. Well, that sounds good too, right? That sounds right. I live for my children. But maybe what that means is you, your world revolves around them. Maybe what it means is your children are the immovable object in your life. And whatever they want, whatever they think they want, whatever you think somehow they need, maybe it's affected by these other things, possessions, appearance, all these things, drives everything you do. And it's become your idol. It's become your temple built by human hands. Well, in the eternal temple, you teach your children. They don't teach you. Children say wonderful, wise, little innocent things. Sometimes they really do. But you know what? You're the wise one. You're the leader. My mom used to say this in her school. She had it for 30 years. You're the grown up. They need you to lead them not in whatever their whims and fancies are, not in whatever the world says they need to do to, 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 to be socially, to create a social or, or, or financial destiny or whatever it is. They need you to teach them to find their life in Christ. No matter how rich or poor they become, no matter how they look or what they play or do or whatever, they need you to teach them to find their life in Christ. They need you to teach them what a marriage should look like. What it should look like when someone does something wrong, what they do with that as a Christian. You don't lose your life in them. You seek, uh, and you seek wise counsel from parents that you respect and admire to raise your children. In other words, you don't put up a barrier that says, no one's allowed in here to say anything about me or my kids ever. You seek it. You seek God's wisdom in scripture. You seek wise people that have been there and done that, who, who's, who you admire, whose kids you admire. And you understand that, first of all, life is mission for Jesus' sake, and your kids need to know that too. That's what it means to raise your kids. No matter what they have, no matter where they go to college, that's what they need. 
Last thing in the spirit of this year, maybe it's your marriage that's become your temple built by human hands. So how could that be? Marriage is good too, right? Well, of course it is. But maybe you developed a routine, a routine in your marriage that looks nothing like God's design for marriage, which is incredibly beautiful. It's an analogy to our relationship with him himself. And maybe you have allowed yourself to develop a routine that allows you to just tolerate each other. Maybe you live separate lives in the same house. Maybe one of you dominates or disrespects or dismisses the other and you've just accepted that as it is or or secretly planned your escape route and you're working on that right now. I just want to say this to you. First of all, let me just say I get it. It is really true that marriage is the biggest, most challenging thing to do in this life. Everything pales in comparison. To marriage because it is such a crucible of our in our of a relationship it's so reflective of our relationship with christ it's where all of our sins come out the brightest or the darkest or however that works but here's the deal in the eternal temple husbands love their wives with sacrificial love of christ in the eternal temple wives honor and encourage their husbands by trusting the lord with their leadership in the eternal temple you never ever 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 give up. Ever. I said it. You never give up. It doesn't mean you stay in a house in which you're being abused. You stay in a house that's dysfunctional. It doesn't mean you just suck it up and tolerate it. It means you get help. You declare each other the right person with your marriage vow and you get help if you need it. So those are a few things. There may be others. You may identify your own idol, your own way of life for which you would have stoned Stephen if he tried to change it. But I just want to ask you, are you hiding things from Christ? Are you living a way of life that cannot be challenged, but by design makes it impossible for you to participate in the disciplines and the habits of God's eternal temple? A way of life that makes it impossible for you to worship him. That makes it impossible for you to gather in community and have relationships with other Christians in your community. It makes it impossible for you to serve. So here's a good test. If you say this about something in your life a lot, that's just the way it is. That's just the way he or she is. That's just the way I am. Well, then you have a temple built by human hands because in the eternal temple, that doesn't work. In the eternal temple, God changes things. He makes wrong things right. Everything. Nothing is too big for him. He makes dark things bright. He makes dead things alive. He takes hard hearts and he softens them. He repairs marriages. There's no room for that. That's just the way it is because of just the way God is. In the eternal temple, prisoners are set free. Fast forward one week from the last week I told you about my friend. Another Christian friend came into his life at the right moment. And ministered to him. She was driving down the road. Hadn't seen him in a long time. Childhood friend. And she passed his house. 
not knowing anything was wrong. And she said, man, something just said I ought to go by. I've driven by it every day. I live down not far. I ought to go by. And I passed it. I got three blocks away and I was compelled. And I turned around and I went back. And I went and knocked on the door. And there he was. And so she called me and the employer. And we got everybody back involved in this redemptive community. And my friend was in detox last week. And he is in rehab this week. And he leaves me little messages, whatever he can, and tells me how good he's doing. In God's holy temple, in his eternal temple, you'd never give up. And he changes things. So don't cover your ears like the council. Open your heart like the masses for Peter. And let him in to those temples you have built by human hands. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, to speak of temples built by human hands just makes so many things flood into my mind about my own actions and behaviors and the the little places that I hide from you and the big places. So I pray first, Father, for the sinner who sits on this stool, that you would tear down my temples and that you would flood into them with your redemption, your redemptive power, that I would embrace that perfect temple who lives in me, Jesus Christ, that one to whom all of these earthly things pointed, all this law and all of these rituals and traditions pointed, was Jesus himself, the true temple. Father, may I and may we dwell with him and with him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.